Hi, welcome back to OI On Air via social distancing. This week, Suzanne Morse fills in for Cayenne on 321 Go. Then, Ann Murphy talks to Brookline Bank's Information Security Officer, Pat King, on the importance of keeping your information secure, both at home and at the office. And last up, two minutes of Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Suzanne Morse. Filling in for the absent Cayenne Isaacson. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Cosmo. How are you? Good to have you back. I'm doing very well. Okay, let's talk about languishing. First off, pandemic languishing. Um, uh, Not to be confused with run-of-the-mill just kind of languishing and not really doing much with your life, but languishing in terms of a gray area somewhere between, uh, oh, I don't know, run-of-the-mill kind of being down an actual mental illness, a uh, big story in the New York Times. And apparently it's kind of the answer as to what many of us are suffering from. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting uh, story because he, they articulated a, a difference between sort of clinical depression and feeling like you are, you know, soaring in life. And he identified it as this, this middle child, which is languishing. And not surprisingly, because so many of us have had to put different parts of our life on hold over the last year because of the pandemic, it's, you know, something that they've identified is something that a lot of people are experiencing and suffering from. Yeah, it's, um, I certainly feel periodically or even more so just, um, like I need to remind myself to kind of break out of the little, you know, remote work pandemic box I'm in and, and just try to experience some of the other things that are possible. And, and, you know, thankfully more and more things are, even if it's just a, you know, a, um, a nice walk around the neighborhood or, or, you know, being uh, COVID safe and masked up and, and going to a store or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, and now with the vaccine reaching critical mass, uh, I think we'll return to some level of normalcy, but it's going to take a long time to unwind from these uh, routines of drudgery we've been existing. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's the big uh, takeaway that a lot of people are, are having. I mean, one thing that was good about the article is it named something, you know, it named something that people are experiencing. And I think it's actually really valuable for people to feel like, oh, this is a thing that lots of people are experiencing. Um, You know, but yeah, I do think that this, I think that unwinding what we've all experienced in the last year is going to take a while. I think we're going to um, really, it's not, we're not going to necessarily know immediately what the impact is um, on people's um, mental health long term, but then there's also just the impact on the way that we work, because um, we all had to abruptly change the way that we work and then get into these new routines. And, you know, I think there's going to be a, this question of how long is it going to take to feel like it felt fe- in February of 2020? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a good, it's, it's a really good point, it's a good transition too, because just as we're you know, understanding more about why it's, it may not be super healthy to be doing everything in one place all the time. 
meaning your home. Yeah. The idea of of, of returning to the office um, is is still kind of far away for a lot of people, at least far away in that and returning uh, in the same way as they had before, or at least in some and in the cases of some workplaces at all, or on a much reduced timetable. And then the and then the the, the makeup of the office itself uh, is is almost certainly changed forever. Yeah. It, uh, uh, there's a pretty fascinating piece, uh, and I think it's something we've been thinking for for several months in Fast Company about about the open office concept, right? The 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 classic Silicon Valley sort of innovation, Google and Microsoft, that has really emerged. Not, not it, it maybe emerged there, but has uh, it, you know traveled and been adopted in other areas of the economy, and you've got top architects, including those who kind of pioneered the open office, saying, yeah, it, the open office is dead. Amber Warnick from uh, Clive Wilkinson Architects, right? They, they uh, Pioneers in this, and they're essentially saying it's not going to recover or, or be a comfortable setting in workplaces in the way it was. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's probably right. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in any way. But um, I think people are going to feel strange about being very integrated uh, and, 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 you know, in an open space with people um, at their office. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that that is I think even um, even after we see, um, you know, people fully vaccinated, they're just going to be hypersensitive to being in um office spaces and other spaces too not just office spaces because you we have all gotten so used to being in spaces with a very small group of people so i just think that there's going to be a lot of hypersensitivity when it uh when it feels like people are ready to to start returning to office space so i it is it's an interesting question i mean i think that the other thing that was interesting about that article though is that it also talks about how um, people miss the human interaction too. They miss the day-to-day interaction with their coworkers. And so, uh, you know, I think there's going to be for a while yet this kind of push and pull between those two feelings of hypersensitivity around being in an enclosed space with, with uh, you know, a critical mass of people, but also really desperately wanting to continue to have that human interaction. Yeah, um, I get a kick off in how when something when change is forced upon us as a society, uh, often afterwards uh, there's a look back that says, you know what, that was that was a lot, that was no good anyways. Yeah. In the same story, you know, it, the, right up top it says, you know, for the actual workers who used open office spaces, the experience was actually less than ideal. They're noisy, lack of privacy. They reinforced sexist behavior. They make people quit their jobs. It's all data and anecdotes from, from, from prior fast company stories, basically with people's uh, nightmare tales of their open, open floor plan office. Yeah. I thought that was interesting as well. It was also interesting though, to see that they have, you know, these additional um, styles that in terms of almost like improving the open office concept. So, you know, the headline was, the, you know, is the open office dead? It sounds like more like it's actually evolving. I think that's right. I think that's right. 
All right, Suzanne. Uh, hey, let's move on to uh, climate change. Uh, big day. It's Earth Week. It's Earth Month. We've just transitioned through Earth Day. And um, the president this week announcing that the United States, that America has a firm climate goal, greenhouse gas emissions to be reduced 50% at least below 2005 levels by 2030, which is not far away. Um, it, it's a pretty aggressive near-term goal uh, for an industrialized nation. Um, and I, I, I would probably stress that's what it is, a goal. Um, but a, a whole package of initiatives to get us there and, 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 and certainly, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a major move in that direction that's going to have reverberations uh, around different areas of the economy and how we live. Yeah, it's interesting. The New York Times said that it is one of the the more aggressive near term targets amongst among wealthy industrial uh, industrialized nations. So that was um, something that uh, they, I'm quoting exactly what they're saying there. Um, I think it's interesting too because I think the Biden administration and, and President Biden himself have really taken this opportunity to talk about job creation as it's part of climate change. And I think that's really important, you know, or in terms of job creation as a way of combating climate change, because I've often thought that if we emphasize the fact that, you know, whole new industries are evolving out of the effort to cut emissions and, and combat the impacts of climate change, that's going to be more effective, but it's only that has only been a talking point or message in the last few years. And so I'm encouraged to see President Biden embracing that because I think it's just a much more effective way to to get a lot of people on board with these kinds of um, initiatives. Yeah, this is one of those things where at least for a period of time, kind of. Uh, the process seems to be the point of the whole thing, meaning, you know, from a policy perspective and 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 bureaucracy and, and, and everything, the idea is to show that we're moving toward that goal, you know, and, and, and as long as that's going on, then I guess we're doing what we need to be doing as opposed to when we actually get there. Um, I mean, it's easy to say now, but it just that feels... Um, how climate policy is being developed, even at the local level. I mean, a lot of communities, my own included, have a, you know, climate impact plan. And we, you know, we want to show progress toward our goals, but the standards or metrics are not always so cut and dry. Yeah. And I think that, I think that there's a lot of frustration amongst, you know, advocates around the notion and activists around the notion that we can't just always be talking about planning. We actually have to act. And the action doesn't just have to be at the federal level. It, it also has to be at the municipal and state levels. But the federal level is important, too. As we saw with the previous administration, sort of completely disappearing on the issue of, of climate change, you know, having a president who's at, who has the bully pulpit talking about, talking about these issues is really important. I also do think, though, you know, his form of action is is through legislation, and it's clear that they see this infrastructure bill, I think, as a way of 
putting some of these plans into action. And I think that is smart. I think that it's much more likely that we're going to see um, real important policy slash resources put into um, addressing climate change through an infrastructure bill than it is necessarily through a bill that's specifically about combating climate change. That's just the reality. I wish it were otherwise, but I just think that's the reality. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the U.S., but I, I believe uh, this con- I would be remiss or this conversation would be would be missing something if I didn't mention that the U.S. and the European Union make up only a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. As you might expect, China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and they're saying and India, uh, also a, a large emitter of uh, greenhouse gases. China's saying, hey, we'll touch base in 2030. That's when we're going to that's when we're going to start reducing emissions. Um, they still have a similar goal to get to zero, which is 2060, 10 years after our goal. But uh, they're basically just saying, we know our emissions are not going to level off or, or, or certainly not come down and may not even plateau for another 10, for another 10 or 11 years. So just that's the way it's going to be. Um, but uh, I just think that's an important reality because it is a global problem and we have a role in it and we're going to be a leader, but other nations need to take leadership, especially those that are emitting the most um, greenhouse gases. Yeah, I um, I think it's important to point that out. I do think that our leadership is important just because when we don't lead, then we get pointed to as not being leaders. So, you know, I think that um, I, you know, I think President Biden's doing the right thing by by really making a, a an aggressive commitment here. Indeed, he is. All right, Suzanne, let's shift gears one more time to um, something kind of fun and interesting and fascinating. Uh, certainly for people uh, in Greater Boston, uh, familiar with the story, but really, uh, it, it's I think it's the number one or number two Netflix programs right now. This is a robbery about the. Uh, uh, historic Garden Museum art heist, um, and playing now, featuring a number of uh, of fine, some of the finest journalists, and uh, <laughs> that we have, uh, you know, uh, had the pleasure of uh, following their work. What do you think? It's been, it, it's. I learned a lot. From, I learned a lot that I did not know, even though, like everyone else around where we live, uh, I had been exposed to sort of the coverage over the years, but there, there was a lot of facts in here that I didn't really, that, that, that actually may have been revealed for the first time about the crime itself. Yeah, so I completely agree with that. And now I should say, I've, I haven't watched the fourth episode, but um, so I've watched three out of the four, but I am aware of the story. I was a junior in high school when the the robbery happened. And in fact, I had a like a class field trip a couple of weeks after it. So it's always been sort of uh, something that I was aware of. Um, I think that what I'm really impressed with in terms of this documentary is how much it really, and I, I said this on Twitter, it really immerses you in what Boston in, in 1990 was like, which is a very different city than what Boston is like today. 
And they just do an excellent job of pulling local no news clips, both sort of TV and, you know, print. But I, it really uh, came home to me and they had a clip from like an infomercial that the one of the museum security consultants had. And it really just felt like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what 1990 was like. And then very much what Boston of 1990 was like. Uh, so it's, you know, from that, it's, you know, it's a, a tragic story in the sense that, you know, there's still these 13 pieces of artwork um, missing, but it is really um, informative from a lot of different levels, I think. I agree. I enjoyed learning about some of these other peripheral or, or you know, related or sort of, sort of meaningful figures, essentially other security personnel um, uh, that were working at the time, meaning not, not at the time of the actual theft, but, you know, they, they worked at the museum during right. that time. And, and, and you learn a lot from them and they're kind of interesting characters too. Um, and, and then just, I don't think this is a spoiler alert for you or anyone else. The, the, the mystery remains, right? Yeah. Where the yeah, heck is this on. art, right? Where yeah. is the art? No one knows where the art is. They kind they pretty much know who did this. They pretty much yeah. know, the, you know, who the, 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 uh, criminal, criminal figures were that were involved in this and, and, that, and, and how they did it. And, and, and they even know the fate of a lot of them and where they wound up, but, it's the art. That's really what matters. You know, that who cares about, you know, at this point, you know, you know solving the crime and, and bringing people to justice, uh, if they're even alive, what's important is, where is the stuff? And, um, and you learn that, yeah, you know, cutting paintings out of the frames and what they, you know, was, was, it was tragic treatment of priceless treasures right tragic that it was treated that way and and god forbid they're rolled up somewhere and hidden which is which is where they are you know that type of artwork is meant to be displayed or at least meant to be hung or stored flat you know in frames as it's supposed to be displayed not rolled up in a tube somewhere yeah and, you know, a couple of the actual, you know, curators or art historians made, um, you know, the point that a lot of this art is meant to be interacted with. It's meant to be looked at. You're you're meant to have, uh, you know, a, for lack of a better term, conversation with that painting that you're looking in front of. And so if it's rolled up in a tube somewhere in, you know, a warehouse in New York, which is one of the theories that was uh, in the documentary, then it's not it's not living up to its purpose as a piece of art. Exactly. It, it, it's it's you know, the the whole point is it for people to experience it, and um, a lot of terrific journalists, uh, you know, uh, participated in covering this story. Steve Kirkshen of the uh, legendary reporter of the Boston Globe, Spotlight team, a major figure in this, also an author of a terrific book. My old colleague, love him, Tom Mashberg, uh, terrific journalist and quite a character. Uh, he has a significant role in in the saga just because there was a fascinating story arc where um each you know chased down a lead that suggested the art was being stored in new york in a some undisclosed warehouse and they took him there in the dark of night and obtained paint chips and it, it was never really sort of proven what that was but they knew that it, based on the analysis it wasn't the missing painting specifically that uh 
um, uh, they thought it might be. That's a sort of fascinating little little piece or net, a story arc. But it's an all you know. It's there's still a, what is it? What, what's the reward out there now? It's more than a million. It's like ten million dollars. Yeah, now. I a mean, huge, huge reward is available. I think what the documentary shows is the story itself has become the story, right? So there's the actual kind of details of the robbery, which are interesting. And, you know, the the whodunit question is interesting, though you're right that it seems pretty clear that they know who did it. Um, but now it's these all these other parts of the story. It's the, ta- the discussion with Miles Connor, and it is the, you know, Tom Mashberg being driven down to New York. And so the story itself has become this its own interesting narrative and that's why I, I suspect that plus the combination of of like some really great boston accents and the immersion into this time period is part of the reason why it's the um the documentary is so popular right now yeah it's really good excellent all right, Suzanne, I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't uh, certainly acknowledge or just kind of pause on this um, significant week uh, and 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 the verdict in this Derek Chauvin case, uh, which came back uh, across the board uh, guilty in the killing of George Floyd. I agree. I think my sense is that people were very much relieved by the verdict. Um, but also, like President Biden said, there's a lot more work that needs to be done to address systemic racism in our society. Yeah. And I, and I, you're absolutely right. I also think that if a, if a, you know, the system's working right, certainly when a, a, a police officer, whoever the the, uh, uh, the suspect is, brought to justice uh, on a crime that uh, uh, the evidence was certainly irrefutable. I agree. All right, Suzanne. Thanks so much. Great talking to you. Wonderful to be here, Cosmo. Awesome. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Three, Two, One, Go. Program recorded remotely, not forever, but still for now, from different locations around the Commonwealth and sometimes across the USA, our producers, Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, partner at Seven Letter O'Neill & Associates. Today, we're talking about the importance of information security in a work-from-home world. My guest is Pat King, Information Security Officer at Brookline Bank. Pat, welcome to OA On Air. Hi, thanks for having me, and uh, good afternoon. Let's start off from the right from the very beginning. Why is it a good idea for people to do a personal information security check right now? Um, yeah, it's a good question. It's something I um, recently posted to internally to our employees as something to take a look at. Um, and it, it basically comes down to the fact that it's just been just past one year now since the whole pandemic thing got started. Um, so we have lots of people and, and probably so does everyone else, lots of people who are working at home remotely. Um, and then if people are coming back to the office or if their job required them to always be in the office, um, they definitely have less people around, right? So um, the way that they're working now, regardless of your situation, is probably different than it was 18 months ago and different than it's been most of our working lives. Um, so having a year gone by now, a lot of those differences might now start to feel more like a routine at this point. Um, so I think it's a good time to just stop and take a breath and, 
and look at that routine, you know, to say, let's make sure we're dotting our I's and, and crossing our T's when it comes to how we're protecting and using confidential information that we're living with every day. Right. I mean, I think all of our, many of our homes have become our offices. And then we sometimes move around a little bit. We have different places that we're working from, but we still have to be very conscientious about the material and the data that we're working with, especially in like a client relationship especially for a bank and, and for my business as well. But one thing, you know, we're all in this digital world, but what about paper documents? Do people still need to be careful of where they are, where these paper documents are placed and are stored? Oh, for sure. My dream would be to have, you know, paper documents all entirely done away with, but in reality, we're not quite there yet. And it'll probably be a long time until we are there. And so typically what I'm thinking of, and I tend to think of information in terms of our confidential information which tends to be the one that we need to protect the most. I usually think of it as existing in some form or another in, in one of three buckets. It's either physical information, which is what we're talking about, anything that was printed, and then electronic information, which generally can be anything you're looking at on your monitor, on your screen, on your phone, whichever screen you're talking about. And then also just information that people know, you know in their minds. And so when all of this change happened, really the, the two areas that were affected is the physical and the electronic information where now we're doing that from a lot more locations. So when it comes to paper, you know, in the before times, as is the same today, we have lots of things like data classification policies and clean desk policies that we all need to, you know, be familiar with and follow. And that tells us sort of, you know, make sure you're storing the information securely and keeping it protected when you're not around, lock it up at the end of the day and things like that. Those policies still exist, even though that paper may be on your desk at home instead of on your desk in the office. So it's still something that you have to keep top of mind is, you know, do I have a drawer that I can lock to, to protect that information? Am I shredding it when I no longer need it now that shred bins aren't abundant, you know, around every corner of the office? So that's what part of this checkup is, is just saying over the past year, have I been printing documents? What have I been doing with them? Let's, you know, you know kick the tires on that and make sure we're still keeping them secure wherever they may be, even if they're not in the four walls of our office anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, you know, you mentioned about the fact that you would like to do away with paper. And I think a lot of people feel the same way too, after seeing the volumes of, you know, file cabinets and everything that they have had to um, have as storage. But, you know, what about electronic documents and sending sensitive information through email? Is there a way to protect those? Yep, for sure. And a lot of that, the protection of electronic documents is so much easier because when you're looking at an electronic document, it exists on a server that our IT departments can put some controls around, whether that be access controls to the directories that they're on and, and all the way up to firewalls for who can get in the network and things like that, where controls around a piece of paper aren't quite as robust. But when it comes to working remotely, once again, somewhat of the same concern is it's a matter of who can see your screen and who can see the information on your screen. You don't want people who aren't authorized to look at your information. So traditionally, that's sort of like who's coming and going out of your office. You're walking away from your desk. Are you locking the screen? Are you protecting things from cleaning crews and things like that that are coming in? The basic idea is that you're protecting access to who can see that. So that same risk still exists, even though now that screen if you will, is, is at your house. So the people who are looking are, are probably different. And that's not to say that your family members and your children or whatnot, they're, they're most likely not you know, malicious actors who are looking to steal your confidential information. But nevertheless, they are unauthorized people to be viewing it. So that's sort of the tax we, we kind of want to take is say, even if they're you know, harmless or you know, not malintended, let's not expose our information. And that gets a little bit more tough, especially if you start thinking of working from home where 
you're using the same computer for work that your kids are using for their homework or for their school now, it's, it's more likely that there'll be more people looking at that machine at home than, than people sharing a machine at your office. So we want to make sure we're still doing all the same things like ending your VPN sessions and locking your screen if you're leaving and closing files out and things like that. It's all about just protecting the information from who isn't supposed to see it. Uh, many people have been working at home using their home internet networks, as you've explained before in our conversation. And for people who want to work from anywhere, I call them cyber nomads, can they safely log in from their local coffee shop or do they need to take extra precautions? Yeah, so I'm, I'm never one to say, you know, never say never. So I think maybe in the case of, of a public network, like a local coffee shop type thing, there may be a very specific use case where something needs to get done right away and you can hop on to get it done. But it, as, a, as a general rule for, for working all day, as a, a general place to work during the workday, I'd stay away from those because you don't necessarily know the controls around that network. Who runs the network? How secure are they? You can't guarantee that other people aren't connected and listening. There's, there's plenty of places you can work from if you're not at home, you know, vacation homes and relatives homes and things like that if you're traveling around and also working. In that type of environment, you, you know a little bit more and you can ask a little bit more of the questions of how is this network set up? Is the encryption in place? What other devices are connected? Things like that. A more trusted network like that is definitely doable. But as a rule of thumb, I would stay away from the local coffee shop type public networks. I think one of the biggest fears of anyone who uses the internet outside of their own homes is identity theft, even inside their own homes, the things they're clicking on. I mean, how can we protect ourselves from this happening to us? Identity theft as a, as a term can mean a lot. So that's sort of the, one of the things we got to watch out for in terms of if you ask three different, you know, three different or 10 different people, what do you think of identity theft? You probably get three to 10 different answers, right? So the way I try to frame it is generally the concern is that someone's out there and they've gained enough information about you and your personal information to impersonate you to the point where they can gain access to your accounts, primarily financial accounts, or if they've gained enough information where they can impersonate you to open up new accounts in your name. That's the probably the top of the top of the risk that, that we need to worry about. That covers things all the way from you know someone using your credit card to buy something on Amazon to someone opening up a bank loan in your account, and then you find out you owe payments on a loan you never took out. So there's all sorts of ways to protect yourself. Some of them are probably going to be things you've heard before. There's fairly standard things that, that, that do go a long way. Make sure you're using strong passwords. Dual factor authentication is huge. Whenever you can use it, definitely use it. Keep your antiviruses installed on your computers and updated. Those are all fairly standard things that you've probably heard of and, and hopefully are, are doing a good job of keeping up with. Beyond that, credit freezes are a great way. If you know you're not going to be needing a, a valid credit check, you know you can freeze your credit so that anyone trying to open accounts will not be allowed to get that check. Shredding and destroying documents is huge. Bank statements that come in the mail, instead of just tossing them in the trash, shred them whenever possible. That prevents that information from getting too far out, out of your realm of, of knowledge, if you will. The other thing that, that's been very big lately is, is how, just have a good dose of health skepticism when it comes to communications, whether from your banks, either phone calls, text messages, or emails, email addresses, phone numbers, they can all be sort of spoofed or impersonated to make it look like it's coming from the valid bank in our case or institution. Really double check those and, and whenever possible, reach out on the official communication lines that they have rather than responding to those messages. Well, I think we talked a little bit about passwords, which can be the bane of everybody's existence sometimes because 
we're always constantly being asked to, oh, let, you need to reset this password now and this and that. And I know it's for protection, but like, what is the best practice for setting passwords, saving passwords, because people forget what they did and changing passwords? Sure. So the, the, the two things that will go the, the longest way is strong password. Longer is always better. You know, sometimes you'll get a minimum length requirement of six or eight and people will just do that six or eight and then be happy, to be happy that they've met the requirement. But if you can if you can remember a longer one, 12 or 16, whatever the case is, those are much harder to crack. And then dual factor, as I mentioned before, like anywhere you can put that on, definitely do it. Get a text message with a code to also put in along with your password. There's some concern out there more recently that text messages might be able to be intercepted, if you will. So it's not 100% foolproof, but it's more foolproof than not having it. If someone intercepts your text message code, they also need to know what you're trying to log into, right? So they have to know what website you're on, what your what email address you're using, and what your password is to, to make all that, to connect all those pieces. I, I do hear you on the password changing and expiration, and, and is there really value in that? And there, there's, some, there's some good argument to say that, that changing passwords just frequently is not the best control. It does lead to things like people who are you or I or the legitimate user, we forget what we changed it to, right? And we locked ourselves out. Or we end up writing it down. Let's write down my new password so I don't forget it. And then now you have a written down password. So changing it frequently may not be the best idea, but I still do believe that changing it sometimes is a good idea, whether that be once a year or once every 18 months. So not frequently, but from time to time for sure. And the, the reason for that is there's all sorts of things that you hear about databases of passwords being stolen or found, you know, unencrypted online, whatever the case is. And when those databases or that information is, is out there, sometimes it sits out there for a long time before whoever, whoever bad guy it is gets around to trying to use it. So your password might be in a database somewhere right now that someone has a hold of, and we don't even know yet. Us as the consumer, sometimes we don't hear about it until months later. So if it takes, if you change your password once a year, that password that was stolen that you might not know about will not be able to gain access to your accounts. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword that you don't want to change it too much because then it leads to exposing the password. But every once in a while is, is good because it gives a shelf life to that information that may or may not be out there. Great. Well, that's all good advice for our own personal security checkups. Pat, I really thank you for joining us and providing this great information today. See you next time on OA On Air. Well, this is the Cayenne and Tom Two Minute Show, and uh, today we share the uh, platform a little bit. Cayenne is away on vacation, and we're joined by Suzanne Moss. So That's it's correct. The Suzanne and Tom Show for two minutes. That's right. Here we are. <laughs> what are we going to talk about today? Um, I believe we're going to talk about the verdict, um, the Derek Chauvin trial uh, that came down on Tuesday. There is hope for America. Um, you know, I, I was I was kind of taken by it, to be very honest with you, in the swiftness of the of the jury to make a decision as quickly as they did in such a defined way um, showed me that the the case against Derek Chauvin was pretty much open and closed, as they say, and um, I, I was startled by it. But I think it was very good for relationships between people of color and white America just to show that a verdict can happen in, 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 a, you know, in a society that has, according to a lot of people, systemic racism. Um, it was a great message for everybody, I thought. How about you? 
Yeah, I thought, I think your point about the the case is an important one. I saw some of the interviews with the alternate juror, juror yesterday, and, you know, she talked very much about how strong the case was. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, um, it is encouraging that um, the state of Minnesota put on such a strong case and that the jury came to the decision that it did. I also do take the point that uh, President Biden made about, you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of addressing systemic racism in in our society. Sure. Sure. I think I agree with that. And but it was a great step. Um, And and the hope that it displayed, I I thought, was transformational, to be honest. Um, And as it settles in, people are asking questions. What next? What more can we do? And so, you know, it's going to have to evolve and we'll figure it out as a society, as a diverse society. But there's always going to be a brighter day in America. That's our history. And it's the history of, of, of this case as we go forward on the issue of race relations in this country. Yeah, I also think it is, of course, worth pointing out that um, George Floyd's family still grieves and I think we all grieve with them because um, he's not here today, and he should be. Yes, I, I think that's right. I also think that they ought to be congratulated for the way they purported, uh, comported themselves. I, I thought they were they were just terrific, uttering the right words, the right phrases, and the right thoughts for that you know that weeks long period of time. Um, and so it was a great guide. Their performance was a great guide. Calling for um, prayers. I- I agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, and, and I think that was one of the hallmarks of the week, to be honest. Anyway, it's always good to talk to you, Suzanne. Have a wonderful weekend, Tom. Promise me you'll come back. <laughs> I will. All right. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.